Amen. Would you open up in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6? We're going to be in Mark chapter 6, and we're going to look at just two verses this morning, making our way, plodding along through Mark. Chapter 6, verses 45 and 46. I'll read aloud. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. In this short text, we see something very clear. It's not hard to understand that in the midst of a busy ministry, Jesus made time to get away and pray. In the midst of his busy schedule and demanding day-by-day ministry, he made time to escape, to be by himself, and to pray. One of the things I long for church is that we would be a praying church, that we would be known as people who pray. And yes, corporately, that we pray together when we gather. I hope we pray regularly in our corporate gatherings. As you've seen even this morning that we spent a lot of time in prayer together. I hope we get accustomed to that and even Rejoice in our ability to come to God and pray as a church. I believe that a praying church is the most potent force on the earth. That a church that prays calls down divine power. It accesses the infinite hand of God to work on their behalf. It expects impossible things to take place. A church that prays makes a mark in the world. And on the other hand, a church that fails to pray is an embarrassment, it's a tragedy, it's a farce, a joke. Because if we are what we say we are and we believe what we say we believe, we have no other option than to come to the living God in prayer. If we don't pray... We've betrayed the things we've said we believe. And so we pray when we gather as a church. You notice, we pray when we gather. We spend lots of time in prayer so that I think if you're not a Christian and you come to our church gathering, it might be a little uncomfortable at times. That's okay. We want you to come to know the God who actually hears and answers prayers. But that's why we pray. We believe in a living God. But we're not going to talk about corporate prayer this morning. We're going to talk about private prayer because this is what we see in our text that Jesus in the midst of his busy ministry escapes for private prayer. Prayer in your life. Prayer that you do all alone as a believer in private. We want to talk about that this morning because that's what we see that our Savior and our example is doing in this text. Do you pray? Do you spend time in private prayer to 
to God. This is one of the most important aspects of our lives to evaluate if we want to know who we really are and what kind of life we really are living before God, we have to examine our prayer life. There's nothing like private prayer to be a measuring rod for how we're doing in our walk with the Lord. There's a lot of things we can fake. You can show up to church on Sunday and you could put on a smiling face and you could fake everyone out that you're a mature Christian in the Lord. And you can show back up in Sunday evening and have good conversations with your Christian brothers and sisters. You can say a lot of things using that Christian lingo. You can say a lot of things that present the idea. You can use those Christian platitudes that put the idea in other people's minds that you have a close and vibrant relationship with the Lord. But listen, here's what you cannot do. You cannot fake private prayer. You cannot fake that. That either is there or it's not. You, you can't do that to impress others. And that's why Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his amazing book, The Studies on the Sermon on the Mount, he has several remarkable chapters on prayer, and he says things that have been to me like knives that have pierced my heart and drawn me into more prayer and drawn me into self-evaluation. In one of his chapters, he says this, Prayer is beyond question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when, upon his knees, he comes face to face with God. A paragraph later. It is the highest activity of the soul, and it is the ultimate test of our true spiritual condition. The ultimate test of our true spiritual condition is how we pray. If that's true, what's your spiritual condition? Strong? Healthy? Vibrant? Weak? Frail? Feeble? What do your private prayers look like? I read this week an article by a missionary. He left out his last name. It was Bill L. And the article that he wrote was titled, I Stopped Praying for Four Years. And the first paragraph read like this. He says, part of me died on December 10th, 2001, when my lifelong friend passed away. In my grief, I viewed God as good but distant. I had no intimacy with him and did not feel his love, and therefore I had little love for anyone else. I concluded that God was going to do whatever he wanted to do with no regard to my prayers, and since there was absolutely zero reason to pray, I stopped praying for four years. I don't want to read this guy so that we can all lampoon him, hold him up as a bad example, laugh at him, Rather, I hold up this example because I think it's probably more common than we might think. That it can happen, and by the way, the story ends out good for this missionary. He's restored to a close, vibrant relationship with God. But it can happen to a Christian to fall into some wrong ways of thinking and wrong ways of living where you essentially give up praying. You no longer pray in private. You no longer have a relationship with the Lord. 
your Christianity turns external only. You continue with the shell. You show up to church. You continue having those kinds of Christian-y conversations. You do Christian-type things. But the shell is hollow. There's nothing on the inside. There's nothing of your relationship with God that's going on in private. I wonder if there are any here. Maybe it hasn't been four years. But I wonder if there are any here who have stopped praying. You've just given up. You don't pray for that person anymore that used to be on your heart. You don't pray anymore for your own soul. You're not confessing sin anymore. Perhaps you're not even aware of it. Perhaps there's something going on with your own relationship with God, that you have this idea of God that because uh, you've experienced hard things, you've gone through grief, that God didn't answer your prayer, that you prayed in the past, that why would you keep coming? Why would you keep asking when all it is doing is resulting in another letdown, another disappointment? Maybe that's where you are. Have you stopped praying? In a crowd this size, I believe there's probably some who have not been praying. And yet they say they follow Jesus. I think America, in our particular age, is a very, very difficult place to learn to pray. In fact, Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, he says American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. Why is that? He goes on to speak on how busy we are, how addicted to entertainment and amusement we are. He writes, when we aren't working, we're used to being entertained. Television, the internet, video games, and cell phones make free time as busy as work. Do you know how to have unhurried, uninterrupted time with God? Do you know how to do that? <laughs> a lot of people in our world don't know how to do that. You might say, well, that's really easy. Just do it. Just do nothing. Like, if you just do nothing, it'll be quiet. You'll be alone, right? Well, no, there are invaders coming into our life from every corner. How do we make sure that we have time with God? And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to see in our text, as we've already said, something very clear, that Jesus made time in his busy life to pray. And I want you to consider our text in this sermon this morning a gentle invitation from God to come away with him and to pray. To make sure that you have in your life times of private prayer. I hope that as a result of looking at what Jesus prioritized and how he did it and hearing about him that some of you would make practical changes this week about your schedule and perhaps your calendar that would result in you spending time alone with God in prayer. We're going to answer three questions as we work through this text. Number one, what did Jesus teach about private prayer? Number two, how did Jesus practice private prayer? And then third, how should Jesus praying affect me? Um, how should Jesus praying affect me? Uh, we're going to start by actually turning back to Matthew chapter 6. So, so go back to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. 
And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has some teachings about prayer that certainly he himself uh, wants us to understand and certainly what he himself put into practice as he uh, gave himself to prayer. We want to first move out of Mark and just ask the question, what did Jesus teach about private prayer? And I'm going to break it down into three big ideas. Certainly there's more than just these three, but these three will give us good handles to grab onto so we can get an understanding of what Jesus taught about prayer. Uh, First, we are to pray as a child with a father. Look at chapter 6. There's a word that is introduced in the Sermon on the Mount that gets repeated again and again, particularly in this section, and that word is the word father. You look at chapter 6, verse 1, where he's saying that people should not practice their righteousness before other people to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your father. That word father is describing God, which means two things. One, that you are to see God as a benevolent, good, generous, listening father, and that you are to see yourself, secondly, as a helpless, needy, reliant child. Father, look at it, it's all through the text. Chapter 6, verse 1, verse 4, so that your father who sees in secret will reward you. Chapter 6, verse 6, pray to your father who is in secret. Verse 8, your father knows what you need. And then you get to chapter 6, verse 9, most famously, our father in heaven. Jesus is teaching you a paradigm shift that you ought to come to God helplessly like a child, empty like a child, confused, perplexed, not knowing everything about everything, like a child, come trusting your father, understanding that he is good and welcoming and listening to you. He desires your good. He wants your best. If you turn over, look to chapter 7 and go down to verse 7, Matthew 7, 7. He's saying, ask, seek, knock, and he's encouraging the disciples to pray. Why? Because, look at verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask of him? Uh, Pray like you have a good Father who wants to give you good things. And so here's what he's teaching. Fundamentally, when you think about prayer, don't think of yourself coming having to earn his audience. Don't come thinking you've got to perform for him. You can do none of those things. Come like a child. Come like a child who just loves his daddy. Come and sit on his knee and know that he wants you there and that he's going to ask you how you're doing and he wants to listen and he cares about you. And even if you pray and he's a little bit distracted and you don't have it all together, do you think your father's like, oh, that prayer wasn't good enough? Try again now. It wasn't as eloquent as I like. Use bigger words, please. No. A child can hardly talk and doesn't have complete sentences. A little child with his father, maybe just cooing like a baby. See, we don't have to have it all perfect when we come to our father, but we do have to understand that we're just children, and he's a father, and he welcomes us. So pray like that. I believe if you peel away the layers of our prayerlessness, you might find something insidious underneath, that the reason we don't pray is we've stopped thinking of God as our father. We've stopped thinking that he is good and that he loves us. And we have this secret idea, never articulated but lingering there in our minds, 
that maybe God doesn't want me to come to him. Maybe I'm too much a sinner. Maybe I've done too many bad things. Maybe I haven't performed well enough this week and God doesn't want to hear from me again. Well, that's a lie. Throw it back to the pit of hell from where it came. Come to him like a child to his father. Second, Jesus teaches this. Don't pray to show off. Look at chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. There's the problem, that they may be seen by others. There are some people who pray to be seen by others. They pray out loud. The, the people he's referring to here, these hypocrites, would put their hands up in the middle of the street so that everyone knew, oh, he's praying. He must be holy. And they did it so that they would be seen. So Jesus' teaching is that you have to come like a child coming to his father and not to come as if you're trying to impress all the people around you. There's some of us when we start praying and anyone, if we know that anyone's listening, we start thinking more about what they think. You ever done that? Thinking about what they're doing, listening to us and how we pray. And suddenly we're not even thinking about God, we're just thinking about the other people around us. If that's what's happening, we're praying to be seen by others. Jesus says, if that's what you do, you have your reward. Your reward is that others think well of you for having prayed such a great prayer. That's the reward. But if you pray to God, he hears and he rewards you. So you don't pray to show off. You don't pray that people might know that you pray. If you pray for an audience on earth, you won't have an audience in heaven. So you come a child to a father, and you come not trying to show off to anyone, but simply to communicate. Isn't that amazing, church? You can communicate with the creator of the universe. He welcomes you in. Third, pray with faith, not doubt. Pray with faith, not doubt. Look at verse 7 of the same chapter, Mark, or sorry, Matthew 6, verse 7. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. They, they think that because they're praying longer prayers and that the words that they're using are eloquent, they've repeated themselves a hundred times in a hundred different ways with a hundred different synonyms. They like pull out the thesaurus and they're looking for every type of word that they can use to restate the prayer. He's saying, you know what? Don't pray like that. You see, what's at the heart of someone praying like that? The heart of that is believing that God's some sort of machine. God's some sort of slot machine. If you pull it at the right angle, it'll release to you the blessings you want. If God's some sort of locked door, if you say the right prayer with the right words, your prayer can unlock the key and he'll open up. At the heart of those kinds of prayers, the meandering, repeating, droning on and on, trying to be eloquent, Often at the heart of those kinds of prayers is the subtle belief that we got to do something to make God disposed to bless us. We got to coerce him. <laughs> we got to twist his arm a little bit. And so we drone on. We say these prayers that are, are words upon words, heaping more and more words upon words, thinking that if we say the right words, then he'll hear us. This is not at all believing faith and in, in the opposite, uh, the, the kind of faith or the kind of prayer we ought to have ought to actually believe that he hears us when we pray and that he hears us the first time. That you can come and you could pray your prayer, bring your request to God, and the instant you release your prayer to God in faith, he has heard you. He has heard you. And you can take a deep breath and go, my father heard me. He hears my prayer. 
believe that he heard you. And go back to chapter 7 again. Look at verse 7 again. Ask and it will be given to you. Watch this. He's inviting you to prayer. He says, I want you to ask. Here's what's going to happen when you ask. It will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks find. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. He goes on describing, hey, if you ask your father for a piece of bread, is he going to give you a rock? If you ask him for a fish, is he going to give you a snake? No, he's a good father. You you know what Jesus wants you, church, to, to believe? Jesus wants you to know that when you come in faith and ask him for that which is good, he will give it to you. He will always give you good things. He will never give you a stone or a serpent. He will never give you that which harms you. And so Jesus is trying to help us see, listen, come to me. I will hear your prayers. God will hear your prayers. He doesn't need to be coaxed into answering our prayers. He's already predisposed like a good, loving father to be generous toward us and to give us that which we need. (laughs) Church, I want to encourage you. This is the... This is the foundation of any great revival in any time in history. It is when the people of God say, I believe that he has made these astounding promises and that he is hearing our prayers. And so we come to him with believing prayer. We actually come to him saying he's going to hear us and we're going to pray and he's going to answer. And we don't know how he might answer, but he hears our prayers. When I was in seminary, I've told this story before, but it's worth telling again, so it might be old to some of you. I had been given an assignment in my evangelism class to pray for someone every day. And so I wrote down three names, and one of those names was my neighbor, and I prayed for him every day. And one day in class, I was sitting there, and the professor reminded me that I was not only supposed to pray for these people, but also to make sure I made an effort to share the gospel with them. I went, all right, I don't want to fail this class, so I might as well see if I can share the gospel with this guy. So not the best motivations, all right? We went out to lunch, and I explained the gospel to my friend, my neighbor. And right there in front of my eyes as I explained the gospel, he transforms. He he repents. He tells me I'm going to be in church Sunday. He's going to be at our Bible study Tuesday night. He's there. He's asking all kinds of questions. He starts memorizing scripture. I get him a Bible. He's devouring it. Let me tell you something. It was a rebuke to me because I hadn't been praying faithfully for others like that. And let me tell you another thing it did. It lit me on fire to pray confidently and boldly for others. And could you imagine, church, seeing the people we've been praying for, walking in in unbelief, walking into a gathering without faith, and that we as a church commit to pray in seeing the Lord do amazing, miraculous works, bringing the dead to life. Would it not stir you up to keep praying? This is what revivals are, is when the church is praying and then they see the Lord answering prayers and people coming in repentance and humble faith to trust in the gospel. And what does it do? It spurs you on again to keep praying. 
Let's do this, church. There are people here that have shown up and have been committed to church because, I believe, we were praying for them and the Lord has saw, saw fit to answer our prayers. And so we continue praying. We believe. Answered prayer is a light on the fire. And so we want to pray with confidence, pray with faith. We come like children to a loving Father. We don't show off. We pray only between us and God. And we pray with faith and not doubt. This is how Jesus teaches us to pray. Now I want you to go back to Mark chapter 6 and we're going to look at, well, how did he do this? How was he expressing humble reliance, humble childlike reliance? How was he praying with faith to his Father, trusting his heavenly Father, believing his heavenly Father? How was he doing it so as not to just try to impress the crowds in a wrong sort of prideful way? Well, look at our text again. Verse 45. Remember, it's coming right after this amazing miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. Remember this? We talked about this last week. It's an amazing miracle, and what we don't realize um, in Mark is something that John records in the same parallel passage, the passage of John chapter 6. What happens immediately after this is that the people realize, whoa, this guy, this guy Jesus can create food from thin air. He can feed us. We want him to be our king. And so in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says that the crowds actually tried to make Jesus their king. They, they tried right there to pull him aside, crown him. All right, we're in the wilderness, but now we're going to storm back into the land. We're going to take it over. You're going to be our Messiah, and we're going to rule. And if we ever get hungry, Jesus, you can feed us. You know, you can heal the sick. You can raise the dead. If we go to battle and one of us dies, Jesus, you're there. Boom, smack us back up into life. We'll go back fighting again. I mean, these guys thought if Jesus is on their side, we could do anything. Let's make him king. But look at this, verse 45. But immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. Disciples, get into the boat. We're leaving here. The, the, the crowd's in an uproar. They're, they're starting to talk about him, crowning him. Okay, disciples, you're out of here. You get into the boat. I want you to go to the other side. You're going to Bethsaida. And then it says, while he dismissed the crowds, essentially Jesus saying, I'm going to take care of the crowds here. Disciples, you go. I'm going to talk to the crowds. And as they're sitting there trying to make him king, he's saying to them, no, 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 I'm not going to be your king. This is not why I've come right now. I've come for a different purpose. I'm going to dismiss the crowds. In verse 46, he finally gets them to leave, and he says he had taken leave of them, and he goes up into the mountain to pray. How's he doing? So I want, I want to point out three ways that Jesus is praying here, and, and three observations we can make about his private prayer life that we can really learn from. First, Jesus prays to align with his Father's purposes. Jesus is praying because right now the crowd wants to derail him from his Father's purposes. What are, what's the purpose that Christ came? To, to, to come to seek and save the lost. He, he came to offer himself up as a sacrifice for sin on the cross to die a substitutionary death in the place of sinners to then rise from the dead he will come as king that is future but in this coming he came to make an atonement for the sins of his people that's why he came to conquer sin to rise from the dead so so the king 
crowning that this crowd wanted to do was a bit too soon, wasn't it? And if he were to take that crown, he would be deviating from the plan that his father gave him. Doesn't this remind you of an earlier temptation Jesus faced? If you're familiar with the gospel story, in the beginning of Matthew and Luke, there's recorded a temptation of Christ. When the serpent, remember, the Satan, the old adversary, comes to Jesus and he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Just bow and worship me. And he says, no, 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 I can't do that. He understood that he didn't want to, he couldn't just go straight for the crown without the cross, right? And here the crowd has kind of given him the same temptation. We want to crown you king. But he knew that the purpose that he came was to die. He was not yet to be crowned king. So what did he do to make sure he is aligned with his father's purposes? He gets away and he prays. He aligns himself with the purposes that his father gave him. In fact, there's, there's three times in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus withdraws to pray. You realize this? Three times. Our text here in Mark chapter 6. Another is in Mark chapter 1. After what? It's after he spent all day healing all the crowds, and they were banging at his door, wondering where he was, and asking, hey, heal us, heal us, heal us. I believe it was another temptation for him to become a medical doctor rather than the Savior of the world that he came to be. In other words, It was a temptation for him to merely be a healer and not be a savior who would die in the place of sinners. And you know where the second place is, or sorry, the third place is where he withdrew to pray? The Garden of Gethsemane. When he's facing the suffering of the cross, he withdraws to pray. In other words, each one of these instances in the Gospel of Mark, there is a temptation that is given to Christ to veer from his purpose And instead of veering from his purpose, he goes away to pray. Prayer, church, is God's ordained way of us being aligned with him. It is a way for us to align our hearts with his truth and with his purposes. It is a time for us to bring our weaknesses and bring our needs to God, bring our perplexities to God, and to ask for help and strength to continue living for the purposes that God has given us. In other words, prayer is the way we stop drifting. Prayer is a way we stop backsliding. Jesus, of course, was never drifting, never backsliding. He was perfect. And so he was always praying to continue being aligned with his heavenly Father. He didn't need to repent. He didn't need to confess. But for us who are sinners, our prayers of confession. And our prayers of bringing our sins to God and asking for forgiveness are ways we are realigning with God's purposes. Prayerlessness, listen, prayerlessness is the first mark of a drifting life. It's like you're pulling up your anchor and you're letting the winds of the world blow you wherever they will. If you have stopped praying, you have stopped communing with God with regularity, taking in his word and responding with prayers for help, you are beginning to drift. You might not feel it yet. I was reading on the Biblical Counseling Coalition website an article that was written by a former pastor 
who fell into sin and disqualified himself. The article, in the article, he tries to describe what was happening in his own heart when he drifted from his purposes and got into this gross sin. He writes, I externally fulfilled my pastoral calling with competence, but I had allowed my personal walk to grow cold. Have you allowed your personal walk to grow cold for lack of prayer, for lack of private time with God? If you do not have private time with God, you are drifting. The anchor's up. The winds are blowing. And you are drifting. Unless there is repentance and you be restored to the right relationship with your Father, and a right relation with your Father consists of regularly, continually, and repeatedly bringing Him all your heart's requests and needs and questions, we bring them all to God. Have you drifted spiritually? Could it be that you have not followed Jesus' example to get away and to pray in private? And so when temptation comes to veer away from his purposes for your life, you've given in. Because you're following no longer his word and you're not asking for his resources to help You're now adrift. You're trying to face these things in your own strength. And the wind is blowing you away from dependence upon God. See, Jesus used prayer to remain aligned with his Father's purposes. Are you using prayer to remain aligned with your Father's purposes? Secondly, I want to notice another thing that Jesus does in this text. It says... Verse 45, immediately he made the disciples get in the boat. So Jesus kind of takes command of the situation, doesn't he? All right, disciples, here's what you're going to do. You're out. You're leaving. Okay? You get in the boat. You go somewhere else. And then he takes command of the crowd. All right, crowd, you, having been fed, you're now full. You don't need any food anymore. I'm sending you away. Jesus begins to send them away, and then he makes this plan to go up the mountain. He's going to pray there. I think this is a simple observation that in reading this text, we won't even think twice about it, but here it is. Jesus made preparations to pray. Do you see that? So, so Jesus prayed to remain aligned with his Father's purposes, and here he's having preparation to make sure that he has time to pray. He goes up to that mountain. He's dealing with the crowd. He's not just winging it. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, when the crowds are coming to him to try to get him to heal more, he was gone early in the morning praying all by himself. I guarantee you, you don't just wing it that way. Jesus was planning a time of getting away. He planned to get up and avoid the crowds. He made preparations to do this. If we don't make preparations to pray, guess what? We will not pray. It will get crowded out. If you don't capture the day and force the day to do what you think it needs to do, the day will capture you, and your time will be squeezed out by every other demand, and you will not pray. But Jesus had the foresight and the wisdom to say, all right, here's what we need to do. 
Disciples, that way. Crowds, that way. Me, this way. We're all getting alone. I am going to pray. You've made an appointment, haven't you? You probably made an appointment this week, perhaps this last month. Maybe a doctor's appointment, and when that appointment comes up, you try not to miss it, right? You have an appointment with someone for coffee. You tell them you're going to meet there at the place at 7 a.m., and you make sure you're there at 7 a.m., and you show up, and you hate to be late, don't you? I wonder if you make appointments with God, the creator of the entire universe, who is omnipotent, who loves you, who is disposed to do good toward you. Do you make appointments and keep them with your maker? Wouldn't it be insane to not do that if we have been invited to do that? How crazy is it that we forego day after day after day invitations to pray with the maker of the universe? How could we say no to that? We would say yes if a celebrity asked us to lunch. We would say yes if our favorite athlete asked us lunch. Many of us are not going to miss the Super Bowl. But we would miss a time with God as if it means nothing, as if it is worthless time, as if it's time to just be thrown away and spent on other things. Why would we not pray? What's going on in our hearts and in our minds? What are we failing to know and to believe if we don't pray? if we don't prepare to pray, if we don't make appointments to pray. Jesus valued it so highly. He's saying, all right, I'm going to arrange the circumstances of my life so that I can pray. John Carson wrote a book called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. Profound and phenomenal book. I was moved reading it. D.A. Carson is a renowned scholar of the New Testament. His dad was just an ordinary pastor in Canada. No one would have heard of him if Don Carson hadn't written this book about his dad. And there's this one section where he's describing his father and how his father would pray. He's describing his father's prayer habits. And he writes this. He says, when the door, was, the, the door to the study was shut, we kids knew not to intrude. Dad's practice in private prayer was to kneel before the big chair that he used and pray loudly enough to vocalize so as to keep his mind from wandering. Outside the door, we could hear him praying. Even if we could not hear what he was saying, I can remember countless days when he prayed for 45 minutes or more. Strange to tell, at this juncture, I cannot recall days that he didn't. His kids knew when the door shut, Daddy's praying, and you give Daddy his time. I wonder if some of our parents might make similar preparations to pray. And I can't say exactly what that would look like, but what would it look like for you to make time to pray? Whether it's shutting a door, whether it's instructing your children, whether it's asking for accountability and help from a friend, how can you prepare to pray I think most of you Christians who are here gathering this morning, you're listening, you hear this and you say, yes, I want to pray. Man, yes, you're right. I really want to pray. I have the desire to pray. My intentions are to pray. And sometimes the problem isn't your desire. The problem is you've never made any plans to pray. You've never prepared to pray. 
And so when the day comes, you're bombarded by a billion responsibilities and prayer gets squeezed out of your life. And then you wake up the next morning and you say, man, I wish I could do it again today. And nothing changes. And so let me ask you, are you preparing to pray? Scheduling it? Making an appointment? I, I wonder if you could get help in this. If, if you're one of those people that go, yeah, that's me. That is my struggle right there. You put your finger on it. You know what you might be able to do this week? Is get a brother or a sister here in the church, a member that's committed to you and you've committed to them, and say, hey, I really need help with this. Maybe we could pray together this week. Or maybe I can tell you when I'm going to pray and you could ask me how it goes. Maybe you could say, I'm going to put it on the calendar this week to make sure I have extended time to spend with God. That's what Jesus did in the midst of a busy life. You know it, children? Little children, if you're here listening, if you're just a child and you're here with your parents, you know what? Your heavenly Father invites you to pray as well. And you could even now begin praying to God regularly, understanding that God invites you to come to him. And you can understand that your sins, though they're great and they're big, that God is willing to forgive them through his son, Jesus Christ, in his death and burial and resurrection, and that because of Jesus, you're welcome to come to your heavenly Father. In fact, this is true not for children. It's true for all of us, that we are welcome to come in Christ. Prepare to pray. Maybe that means you take a day off. Maybe that means you turn off your phone. Maybe that means you turn off the screen. Maybe that means you set aside an evening. Whatever it might mean, work toward it. And here's our third point and how Jesus prayed is we notice that Jesus valued privacy. He went up, you see there, after he sends everyone away, he went up on the mountain to pray. Why did he do this? Better reception up there? God will hear him a little more if he's up a mountain. There's some potential answers. One some have suggested that the reason that Jesus went up and answered or went up to pray was because you get up a little higher, the perspective's a little broader, you can see the, the hillsides and the valleys, and your your vision is a little more like fa- the, your heavenly fathers, and you're reminded of certain realities that you're just small and the world is big and God's over it all. Well, that might be some of it, but probably not all of it. Likely it's not the main thing. Uh, there's also some symbolism here. In fact, uh, many scholars have noted that the fact that Mark records Jesus going up a mountain to pray should remind us of others who have gone up the mountain to receive revelation from God. Think of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on, on Sinai. And you can think of even Elijah, who on the mountain received this revelation of the character of God. And Jesus now standing in the great tradition of these prophets who have come and received revelation from God and And Mark could be saying that Jesus, too, goes up on the mountain to demonstrate that he is sent from God to bring revelation to his people. And I think that's true. I think also there's this more simple explanation, that it's private up there, that there's silence on top of that mountain, that there's a privacy that he would not have gotten if he stayed down in the valley where all the crowds were. You see... Jesus wanted to get away, and so he goes up this mountain 
You can imagine the sun setting on the lake after a long day. He's been active all day serving these people. And he wants some all alone, unhurried, undistracted, private time with his father. Just saying that out loud makes me desire it, right? Doesn't it make you long for that quiet time with your maker? Private. Jesus didn't do this all the time. He wasn't a monk or a hermit. But sometimes Jesus valued privacy for the sake of his prayers and for the sake of his relationship with his heavenly father. You know, isn't it interesting to think that this this instance of Jesus withdrawing from people, listen, people that he loved, his disciples whom he loved, the crowds that he had compassion on, he leaves them. Here is perfect love leaving behind people. Sometimes, church, the most loving thing you can do is to get away from people you love so that you can make sure that you have time with your Father and that you can pray to Him in private. There are some people who are like reverse icebergs. What's an iceberg? An iceberg is all the iceberg, most of the iceberg, 90% of the iceberg is under the water, and what you see up front is just a, uh, just a part of it. But some people, all that they are, spiritually speaking, is the visible stuff, but the private stuff, there's not really anything there. Have you heard about the myth of the man who has only existence when others are around him? He's at the party. He's standing over there by the snacks. As as long as people are there and people are gathered and people are talking, there he is among them. But when the last person leaves, he ceases to exist. He just vanishes. And I think there are some who are like that when they're in their spiritual relationship with God. Externally, they're here at church. In conversations, they're very Christian. And when it all goes away and when the public display of your Christianity is ended, at the end of the day, there is nothing there. They have no spiritual life apart from what's public. What's private doesn't exist. Let me ask you, is most of your Christianity under the surface? Do you have a private, unseen relationship with God? If your answer to that question is no, let me encourage you to to change some things. Repent and create a real, vibrant relationship with God by His grace and understanding that He's welcomed you to have such a relationship. Do you have any private relationship with God? You see, Jesus clearly did. His, His life was very public. He was very busy. He was very active. He was always serving. He was always ministering. But he had a vibrant relationship with God, his Father, in private. And so he would regularly vanish from the clouds to go up to mountains or away by himself. Why? So that he could pray. You should do the same. But here's our third point, our third question. What does this mean for us? What does it mean for us that Jesus gets away to pray, that Jesus prioritizes it this way? All throughout his earthly life, Jesus prays. 
In fact, if you want to study this more closely, read the Gospel of Luke and mark every time that Jesus gets away to pray and how often it says that he regularly disappeared to pray. You will find that he was praying at his baptism. You will find that he was praying the night before he chose the 12. He stayed up all night before he chose the 12 disciples. He was praying before Jesus realized that he was, or sorry, Peter realized that he was the Messiah. He was praying before he transfigured before Peter, James, and John. He was praying, uh, and that's what uh, created this desire for the disciples to learn about prayer. He prays before feeding the 5,000. Interestingly, in the Gospel of Luke, we're given the story of uh, the, Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And he has this meeting with these two men, and even in the resurrected body, he prays uh, for the food right before they eat it. In other words, Jesus all through his life was praying. All the way through, in every instance, all the time, Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father. And even after the resurrection, he's praying. And get this, church, there's a lot of hope here. Okay, there's a lot of encouragement here. If you've felt convicted, tune in now, okay? Because I want to show you that Jesus not only prayed all throughout his life, but the Bible also says, listen, he's praying right now. That what he was doing there on earth, he is now doing also in heaven right now for his church, for his children. That he's praying for us, he's praying for you right now. Now, and I want you to turn to Mark, or sorry, to Romans chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans chapter 8. And here we encounter what could be described as an Everest of hope, of comfort, of encouragement, just an absolute mountain of glory for us Christians that we ought to take so much encouragement from these verses. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things, Paul says? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? I want you to, to even look at the language. Paul is raising massive questions. Who can condemn us? That's a question. Who has the right to condemn you, Christian? He goes, well, Christ is the one who died. You, you can't be condemned if your sins have been paid for, right? Christ died for your sins. You don't have to worry about being condemned because the, the payment for your sin has been already paid by Christ. He died. But look at that language. Look at these next words. More than that. You say, wait a second. What could be more securing to the believer than the death of Christ? What could be more amazing than the fact that the death of Christ paid for our sins and secured our redemption? What could, what could add to that? Here it is. He says, in addition to the fact that Christ died for the sins of his elect is this, that he is raised from the dead, that he's at the right hand of God, and that he is indeed interceding for us. In other words, he conquered death. He's raised from the dead. He's alive right now. And currently, he's praying us into heaven. He is not letting us go. 
He is holding us fast in his prayers. He is interceding on our behalf so that we will be kept. We will be held. We will persevere only because of the sovereign grace of God, which is given to us because we have a mediator who is always praying for us and never ceases to pray for us. God will not let us go because the Son will not stop praying for us as our advocate, as our Savior, as our great high priest. So here's what this means for you. What is our hope? What do sinners have to hold on to as hope before a holy God? And what, do, what hope do we have, even as redeemed sinners, that God would even want to hear our prayers? It's that the Son of God is there at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. He's there praying. So listen to this, church. If your prayers have been distracted, his haven't been distracted. <laughs> if you've wandered in your prayers and you've felt discouraged, he's never wandered and felt discouraged. If you think that your prayers need to be perfect, let me tell you, they won't be, but Jesus's will be. Your confidence that God hears your prayers is not in the greatness of your prayers, but in the greatness of the interceder, the, interc the intercessor that we have at the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ, your prayers are frail, his are strong. Your prayers are wandering, his are focused. Your prayers are distracted, his aren't. He is always ever interceding for you. And right now he again invites you, keep coming back to pray and to pray and to pray because he has not given up on you. And you might have fallen asleep during your prayers, but he never has. And he is up all night praying for you. He will never cease praying for you. And so you can wake up in the morning again tomorrow and you could say, my Savior's been praying all night and he will never give up on me. He will never give up on praying for me. He will pray me home to heaven. He prayed through his wife on earth. He prayed his way to the cross. He prayed after the resurrection. And now he prays for you in glory. And the basis of your prayers is the fact that he is your intercessor. He is praying for you. And he always prays for you. And so listen, church, don't give up. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. Pray without ceasing. Don't quit. Better to fail again than to quit. So pray like a child. Pray weak. Pray distracted if you have to, but just keep praying. And when you're finished praying, say, my Savior's still interceding for me. And if my prayers are weak and distracted and feeble and frail, his aren't. And so I will continue coming to God through Christ. So church, will you commit to pray this week and to take time, like Jesus, to get away in private and pray? Let's pray. So Lord, we again finish as we started. Lord, teach us to pray. Thank you for the example of your son who is, who is always praying while on earth and who is even now praying while in heaven. Help us to be encouraged even if our prayer life is discouraging. And let us resolve again to pray knowing that we are weak, you are strong, and you are generous. In Jesus' name.